Welcome back to Design Emergency, the podcast that Alice Rostorn and myself, Paola Antonelli, founded in 2020 to show how design was at that time responding to the pandemic and then how design uh, can have a role in making a better world for everyone. Today, we are speaking with Lake Jayethus, who yes. is like me. An architect by training, then spanning into the world, and he's based in New York City, actually in Brooklyn, and mm-hmm. studied architecture at Cornell. Lake, welcome to Design Emergency. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Lake is in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art, so I'm speaking a little bit, um, you know, in in my own home, and also was part of two exhibitions at MoMA, so he's really family. But it's not only us who get the credit for having worked with him. Actually, the list is really long. And most recently is Pioneer Works, uh, my beloved uh, sister institution in New York City. And then also before that, the Biennale of Architecture. And this year at the Biennale of Architecture in Venice, Lake got the Silver Lion. It was Leslie Locco's momentous laboratory uh, of the future, Biennale, which will remain in history. And the central room in the central pavilion was Lake. And we're going to talk about it uh, today <laughs> together with other projects. So, Lake, uh, first of all, I wanted to ask you, Your work is a testament to this new moment for architecture, one in which buildings are only one of the possible manifestations. What does architecture represent for you? What is your, what what use do you have for architecture? That's a great question. I think, you know, I was inspired by my education at Cornell University. And so I pretty early on decided that I wanted to I guess, pursue a more artistic trajectory that was driven by, I suppose, the the architectural process. Everything we do in order to arrive at that building was something that was incredibly compelling for me, like illuminating that process. And I think very few people are aware of, you know, the amount of narrative uh conceptual thought processes um create you know creativity research investigation that goes into creating architecture right so if architecture capital a the building um is this sort of the resolution the end of the story everything else um arriving at that moment is part of that process for me is the architecture as well for me, you know, I think we, we we just see the building and we hear who designed the building and it's always just one name, you know, you don't know who was drafting for Cabouzier or Mies Van, you know, very few people, we may know a little bit more. We're about slowly who. finding out now, right? <laughs> exactly, slowly finding out who exactly was doing a lot of that work, who was in the office, you know what I mean? So that even reflects right there that our experience in the public with architecture is is really just the absolute tip of the iceberg. And so that's why I consider, you know, so much of the creative process that goes into creating architecture to be architecture itself. It's also interesting because when I came to the United States, having studied also architecture, but in Milan, uh, there was this whole idea of the program. You know, in, in Italy, they tend to 
teach you context, history, and instead mm, here was the program. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the mm-hmm. program was detached from reality, which in a way maybe could help some speculative work, at least some of the speculation. Mm-hmm. But as, that's what I wanted to ask you about. You know, speculation in architecture has had ebbs and flows. And mm-hmm. you went to school at a moment of absolute peak. It was mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. peak speculation. But it was a special kind of uh, kind of speculation because it was rooted in reality. And it seems to me that you always have this balance between speculative architecture and reality. Can you mm-hmm. tell me more about what remains of architecture in your speculations and what speculation allows you to do as an architect? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think speculation and um having it rooted in reality allows me to explore contemporary social, political, environmental, religious, mythical um, realities and, and place them into, I guess, a new content, like an, like a new context or to set um, the parameters of, of the world that I'm exploring in a way where, because it is speculative, it can be as subdued and understated or as wild and even implausible, um, you know, which I've done in a variety of projects, right? And in that way, I think, you know, when I'm arriving at kind of a building, right? The, the, again, that architecture, the capital A architecture, say, it's been in a way that's often been implausible for the purpose of, I guess, uh, generating discourse or critique about, for instance, it could be the real estate industrial complex, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a lot of times either it's wildly inventive or like in my frozen neighborhoods projects that was at the MoMA, I was particularly interested in, you know, having the aesthetic of the bodega and the storefront church and subway infrastructure, a lot of kind of what, you know, really is is is, is the visible aesthetic of, of kind of Brooklyn neighborhoods of community, right? And, and having that be present in 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 the work i've been calling it vanishing ephemera right um because as i've lived in crown heights for 23 years so as a um this neighborhood i mean gets more and more gentrified the language of buildings the aesthetic adopts that you know metal paneled um two three-story apartment building with the font we know with the numbered font on the front so the, the kind of the, the 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 building typology is changing um, so architecture manifests in that way at times, right? Implausible or nostalgic or what have you is a way of, um, I think, identifying the culture and the community or critiquing the systems. This is one of the frustrations of doing a podcast, right? That I cannot show right now what you're talking about, but it will be uh, it will be then in the Instagram platform. And I have to Perfect. say, you're an amazing visual artist. You know, it's not only the imagination, but also the rendering. So you, mm-hmm. you started talking about the frozen neighborhood. So 
let's go and speak about the three projects that we want to cover today. Because in your practice, you do also a lot of public art. It's very mm -hmm. multifaceted. But today, we're going to focus on three projects. One is the one that you just talked about, which is the Frozen Neighborhood mm -hmm. in 2021 at MoMA. And then we're going to cover two projects from this year. And... Mm -hmm. um, I like the fact that you you talk about your work as layering and evolving. So in a way, all of these are are like uh, building on each other. So um, going back to the first one, the frozen neighborhoods, that was part of an exhibition at MoMA in 2021 that was called Reconstructions, Architecture and Blackness in America. And the beautiful part about your intervention, intervention in the frozen neighborhood, as everything that you do, there's this root in what is already familiar to people. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. New Yorkers could respond and also worldwide, everybody could respond because people have this image of New York. So mm -hmm. what, what did the title Frozen Neighborhoods meant? And what did you want to display and to explain with the Frozen Neighborhoods project? Yeah, so I was interested, I guess, in first incidental exploration into the climate crisis and environmentalism and, you know, how we respond to these particular issues um, and then how these issues reverberate and affect certain communities. And so the frozen neighborhoods began with this premise. And these works are actually they're futuristic, I guess, because that's a way to locate them, but it's actually retro futures. So they're um, in the past, but alternate timelines with advanced technologies as part of it, right? Imagining what might have happened given a certain set of conditions, and we pivot away from the reality that we know now. So the Frozen Neighborhood Project starts with the idea of mobility credits as this really almost severe um, government federal legislation that has that has been enacted where individuals, families, what have you, uh, the mobility credit system determines how often, how far, how frequently people can travel. And it was imagined in this world that this is 1972 when the mobility credit system was established as a way to like severely, severely curtail um, carbon emissions. Um, but, and this is a collaboration with a, a good friend and colleague of mine, Maddie Vaz, who also went to Cornell, but not architecture. Um, he's, a, he's a sociologist and a historian. Um, but we imagined that this would be at the kind of mercy of the free market system so that people with more money, uh, the rich who wanted to maintain the kind of freedom of movements could buy up um, mobility credits from poorer folks, uh, more marginalized communities who wanted to leverage, uh, you know, the sale of these credits to, I guess, you know, kind of um, uh, gather up capital, right, to then pursue self-sustaining uh, projects. And so the Frozen Neighborhoods begins in 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 Brooklyn in the mid 90s that's this kind of setting for all the um photo montages and video and sculptures that I created for this project so you know roughly two decades following um the implementation of this system and so 
I, I really then, you know, froze neighborhoods because these communities can no longer, they've sold their mobility credits. They no longer can leave. They can no longer can travel. Um, invoking, you know, the, the history of maroon communities uh, throughout the, um, you know, here, here in the Americas, in North Carolina, South Carolina, as well as throughout the Caribbean, right? The escaped uh, enslaved communities who then went off into, you know, um, certain areas of the wilderness or the Great Dismal Swamp and created a community. So I'm imagining this in a sense parallel but within Brooklyn in the mid nineties in a retro futurist world. And then all of the kind of advanced green technologies that relate to um, farming and food production and uh, uh, fresh water, rain harvesting and all of these things. And even, you know, the subway systems no longer run. So I have a series of young uh, hackers called the Clarity, the TFN Clarity, who've overtaken uh, the MTA and basically turn them into like school rooms, uh, offices for social services, uh, phone banks, um, just, you know, all the kind of community uh, services that, 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 that are provided um, oftentimes by bodegas and, and storefront churches now kind of occupy um, subway, stationary subway cars. That is the beautiful part about your work is that you imagine whole worlds with infrastructures, with uh, tensions, frictions, with um, like resilience, you know, to use a word that sometimes is overused, but also that come from your own experience. And from the moment that we're in right now, historically, where systemic racism becomes uh, the history of it, becomes a way to imagine a future that could even be better. And in front of your tableaus, and photo collages, one can lose oneself for hours. Uh, I wonder how much text accompanies your work. Yeah, a lot of text does um, accompany the work. It, it really starts with text. I actually, I, I say this, but it's still a hidden secret. I don't sketch really at all, to be honest, at all. My The, the, the very early part of my process involves just jotting down notes on my notepad app um, in my phone, and then really just describing the world. And when I'm collaborating with uh, Matthew Vaz, who I've worked with him on a number of projects, not only this, many years ago, the um, Adverse Speak project that I did at the kitchen, um, there's a there's tons of text. There's almost like pages and pages that 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 you know that I'll draft up some notes, send them to Maddie. He will refine them with really what he knows about the world and about the history, being a historian, particularly, you know, of New York City. Um, and, you know, he has much more knowledge of, um, again, you know, U.S. history, of government, of politics. So much of these worlds are steeped in a lot of that kind of research and a lot of written work precedes the imagery. So who's your favorite sci-fi writer? Oh, that's so tough. Sorry, I don't know I'm if just I have bringing this on you, but it's like uh, it's so fascinating because truly, it's the best sci-fi is the one that has this plausibility. I mean, you can imagine a society that yeah. could be right. So yeah, you can think absolutely. about it during the interview. You'll you when when it'll come to you, you'll tell me. But so. Um, Speaking about this idea of imagining a better future, let's talk now about the biennial. You know, so oh. it was the 2023 Biennial of Architecture by Leslie Loco, and it was really groundbreaking. What Leslie said of this laboratory of the future biennial, she said that, I'm quoting, 
for the first time ever, the spotlight has fallen on Africa and the Africa diaspora, that fluid and enmeshed culture of people of African descent that now straddles the globe. What do we wish to say? How will what we say change anything? And to me, that question is the one that I would like to pose to you. You were born in Nigeria, and then Mm -hmm. you immigrated and studied here. Mm -hmm. You still have roots there, and you still know. And your project for the Biennale is about Mm -hmm. Africa, and it's really kind of Mm -hmm. like gloriously about it. So can you answer the question that Leslie posed? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, well, at least from my vantage point, and one of the things that I've always done um, and I think makes m- my work kind of unique in, 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 in a particular sense, at least within the architectural context. You know, there's plenty of examples, you know, literature and music and what have you. But but thinking through um, the idea of, of futurism, you know, of futurist envisioning um, that takes place um, on the continents and throughout the diaspora. So much of our, you know, experience with the continents is is oftentimes a kind of um, patronizing, paternalistic way of engaging where, you know, we're going to come in and build schools and we're going to build hospitals. And there's so much that sense of, of you know, the West coming in to save um, Africa, right, through these projects. Um, and and so much of, of what the work or the way I've engaged, um, uh, I think I think I think with the con- with the continent has been through just that kind of exuberant reimagining that isn't directly connected to um, things like the resource curse or you know just really reimagining kind of on on the ground. Um, and so for this project. I, I really wanted to look at, uh, so if the frozen neighborhoods was about being grounded and, and kind of um, closed off from the world, I, I wanted to look at this project being almost a diametric opposite of, of kind of, it's now kind of African world, um, as opposed to, you know, saying the diaspora, which is, is more of a reflection of um, the impact that colonialism has had on on the continents and and you know, migration um, uh, through that, right? Um, And so I'm imagining where environmental organizations throughout the continent, you know, continent-wide have really um, begin to collaborate to pursue alternate uh, fuel sources, projects, conservation that lies outside of the way Africa is is being exploited and continues to be exploited for for its resources and kind of controlling controlling that right. Um, I'm going to just give not, a little. I'm mm-hmm. going to give a brief in, uh, introduction to the project, so then you can take it from there. But so okay. the project is called African Conservation Effort All Africa Protoport, and it's ACE slash AAP, and it's about uh, repairing the damage that has been done to these uh, African continents' ecosystems. And there's the there are, um, if I'm not mistaken, there were twelve regions that are located mm-hmm. in Lagos, Mombasa, Port Said, but then it's going 
beyond Africa in different parts of the world, New York, Los Angeles, and Port-au-Prince, Savannah. So the idea is to start this kind of like movement and this kind of system in mm -hmm. Africa and then export it to the rest of the world. That's why I said also gloriously so, because mm -hmm. it becomes really, <laughs> no, it becomes a way to test something on a continent that already knows how to mm -hmm. kind of shrug trouble from itself mm -hmm. and how to move forward in a st in state of duress and then mm -hmm. teach it to the world. So, sorry, I wanted to give this introduction so that then you could just oh, great. <laughs> take it, you know, run with it. Yeah, no, no, that's perfect. So, so you're right. So in, in, in thinking through this project and creating this new world, and again, like the frozen neighborhoods, this starts from, 1972 um, is where this work for the Biennale, the, instala this, the installation takes place. And so again, um, a decade or so after um, the majority of African um, countries gained independence from colonial rule. And so the African conservation effort is a continent-wide conservation group and they develop technology um, based around algae and algae production, and 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 of course with you know blending that with hybrid technologies for wind, tidal energy, um, solar energy, and, and what have you, and as a means of of as, again both both testing these technologies but collaborating throughout the diaspora, uh, I imagine they've created. Uh, a proprietary travel network, research and travel network called the All Africa Protoport. And they and I ha have them located, as you mentioned, throughout major coastal cities, both on the continents and throughout the diaspora. And then the site for the Venice Biennale uh, installation is the 13th Protoport, which is not a coastal city, but is in the Barazzi floodplain of, of Western Zambia. And so that's where I introduce kind of the tensions around the project that I explore in the video essay and illuminate a little bit further. It's not simply a kind of utopian world and it's not even a dystopian world, right? Because that doesn't attend to the realities, to the tensions, to the difficulties, to the, you know, the conflicting narratives. So in thinking uh, through, you know, this massive travel complex being placed in the Barassi floodplain, what is the impact that has on the Lozi people, you know, the kind of community and their culture? And what does the broader, um, you know, system, all Africa port system, you know, throughout the diaspora, the implications, again, of this massive African research travel network versus the kind of local community. And I mean one of the questions I, I explore just touch upon lightly is is it is it a is it a not you know mimicking the kind of colonial expansion in 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 in, in the most insidious way, but in certain aspects, right, of creating such the, such a massive network that is rooted more in a kind of global identity as opposed to the specificities of the cities, the countries, the communities. It actually um, exploits the colonial expansion in a way, which I, yeah. I, I like the fact that it kind of hijacks it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, and what is wonderful is that 
in the central room of the central pavilion of the Giardini at the Biennale is this whole pan-African world of innovation and ideas and everybody's taking selfies <laughs> and oh. posting them. It's so great. You know, they're placing themselves in the All Africa protoport and then absolutely. And you know what? I see you've already done a video and that really thrilled me because it's so mm-hmm. ripe for movie and video. But have you ever thought of a video game? And I'm saying it seriously. You know how seriously I take video mm-hmm. games. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought of video games based on your imagination? Absolutely. Absolutely. I I designed these projects to be video games um, or to be movies or a series. And I've, I mean, I've, I've, I've always wanted to, you know, and I've, you know, when I have downtime, I've even set aside to learn, you know, learn more programs like Unreal and different VR so I can create a kind of video gaming experience. That's always been um, my desire to transform these worlds into uh, a gaming experience that might be like a choose your own adventure you know what i mean because they are because they are massive worlds right so kind of like stories that lead you through different spaces and places and choices Um, that you make Mm -hmm. and choices that you make exactly because that's how i conceive it i always tell people it's interesting it's it's interesting and it's almost frustrating in a sense when i have to exhibit work um like the frozen neighborhoods in MoMA and, and the Annali. And, you know, very grateful that Leslie gave me that really big, amazing room that allowed me to realize much more of, of the world because I actually designed it to be, uh, you know, you know, based on a departure lounge. Um, But from the vantage point of a five-year-old, which is when I was doing my travel, intercontinental travel. Wonderful. So that, yeah, so that all the adults would be sitting on the seats the way I was, dangling their legs off the edge. Which so the furniture is oversized, very specifically for that reason, um, to you know shrink the adult to the to the scale of the child. Um, but I know I was I was saying it's, it's frustrating because uh, I don't think people are aware how much of uh, curating and distilling of of the work and the project. Like you asked, how much. Um, writing accompanies this work, right? Tons and imagery, tons and research, tons. But I really have to carefully curate the images. So if you see, you know, eight images in any of these exhibits, know that there were 40 photo montages made and I had to decide which ones go in. Same with the videos. I, I work from a kind of excess because I'm working up until the last minute you know none of these projects are finite they're all oh, iterative it must and be so difficult connected. somebody yeah. has to tell you to stop right <laughs> exactly. i can imagine you don't know when to the stop. deadline tells me to stop or the curator saying so we funny. really need your work you know i like the fact i like also this collaboration with the curators which leads me to the next uh, to the next project i would like to speak about which is the mm-hmm. climate futurism exhibition by our dear friend dr ayana elizabeth johnson who's mm-hmm. an ecologist and a climate policy expert and somebody who really 
tries to look at possible, plausible, better futures, right? So mm-hmm. there's a book that's going to come out that that, that is uh, next year that's called What If We Get It Right? right? So anyway, exactly. this exhibition on climate futurism is at Pioneer Works. And it's an exhibition in, on which you've worked together with fellow artist Erica Diemann and poet Dennis Froman. And it's part of the Headland Center for the Art Fellowship. And it's climate mm-hmm. futurism, which is basically what you've been doing for a while. It's, it's, it's about imagining mm-hmm. a climate future. So what have you presented for this exhibition? So I've presented two photo montages. Um, I'm on the third floor gallery at Pioneer Works. And so on the outside are these two photo montages that are glimpses into um, the world, which is an extension of the frozen neighborhoods, um, but now in- involves what I'm calling the proto-farm communities of upstate New York. So it's a collaboration between upstate New York, bioforestry, agroforestry, and the frozen neighborhoods in Brooklyn. So I have the mo- photo montages. I have a, a fly-through uh, as well, video on the outside, which is kind of a truncated experience of bringing you on a uh, hover train, magnetic hover train that brings you from Brooklyn up to, you know, a a proto-farm commune. That is reflected as well in a kind of immersive VR space inside of the gallery. And then I have two 3D printed sculptures of vehicles, like a hover greenhouse vehicle, and then this like sea drone, this, you know, one person passenger sea drone. And then on the far wall, um, there's a massive wood uh, sculpture, a kind of psychogeographic map that really is almost like an abstracted key legend that details um, all of the different technologies and planting schedules within this world and the maps that show um, the various train stops and the canal system as well, um, so I'm imagining that we're, you know, in, in, in this in this alternate world, we've revitalized both the train network and the canal system that connects, you know, um, this triborough area to, to upstate New York. So it's really like a an like an immersive experience of sculpture, photo montage, video, VR. Um, yeah, really exciting. Yeah, it doesn't get more immersive than that. You know, it's uh, and I'm sure that you're already plotting the next, and I can't wait. Always, um, you're imagining all these worlds, but very interestingly, you also need to really keep your feet in reality very often, and you do it a lot with your public mm-hmm. art. The last yeah. matter that I would like to discuss with you is your project of percent for policy. I find it so fascinating because you want the world to change and you're willing to actually put some bricks down. So can you explain percent for policy, please? Yeah, no, this is and this is just a very informal conversation that I've had with colleagues and friends of mine who are in this space um, doing public artworks, you know. Um, And it really is I, I, I would just like there to be some kind of material, uh, financial policy, you know, some legislative thing that accompanies projects that commemorate neighborhoods, Black neighborhoods very often that have been displaced. 
or destroyed at one time, you know, either through actual violence of displacement, through, you know, redlining, marginalization in that sense, through, you know, running a freeway through these communities, you know, there, there, there are projects and, and, and it's a um, kind of more complicated conversation because commemorating these neighborhoods and these communities is very important, very, very much important. And it's something that a lot of communities work very hard to receive that acknowledgement and to receive that history, you know? So I'm not saying that 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 isn't important, but I but I also think it would be really incredible if there was material investment either in these communities or in, you know, uh, or, or some sort of reparative, you know what I mean? Uh, I do, and I like the fact that you... Yeah put the highlight on policy because policy is mm -hmm. where it starts. We can imagine, Absolutely. we can claim, we can sing and uh, we can yeah. just like talk till kingdom comes, but policy is where it's at. So I really appreciate how mm -hmm. many artists and architects like you really think about it in such realistic terms. So mm -hmm. today we have spoken with Olalika Njehefus, who is an architect and an artist and a visionary that talks about a possible future and possible futures where architecture helps community come together and helps also heal the environment from a very unique perspective that is rooted in hope and in utopia, not dystopia. So, Lake, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Always, <laughs> always enjoy a conversation <laughs> with you. And to all of you who have listened, thank you for joining us. And please be tuned for the next episode of Design Emergency coming soon.